Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, where you been? Buckeye talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to a Thursday Buckeye talk from Cleveland.com. We're going to break down the Rose Bowl matchup. Blaine Maurice, Nathan Baird, Stephen Means, got some stats, got some film watch on the Utah Utes, and we'll go through both sides of the ball, and then you will learn more about this team in, in the lead-up next week, when Ohio State players are talking, when Utah players are talking, we'll learn more. This is what we know now, so we're not making picks or anything yet, but this is where it stands, and again, I just would direct you guys on the college football survivor show, which is available wherever you listen to Buckeye talk, you can search college football survivor show. You'll find that my co-host Shahan J. Haraja and I on that podcast did this for both playoffs semifinals. So we ran through Georgia and Michigan and Alabama, Cincinnati. And we're going to do the same kind of thing here. Not exactly in format though. So I, I, let's start with the Utah offense and this matchup against the Ohio state defense. I don't know where to look up the stats for this exactly, but I know Todd Blackledge said it during one of the Utah-Oregon games that Utah uses more three tight end sets than any team in college football. A lot of people have made the comparison to the Michigan offense and the way they're physical, the way they want to run the ball. I will tell you, watching Utah, the team that came to mind for me was the Browns, man. Like This is... Kevin Stefanski and the Browns love 13 personnel. They love throwing to the tight end because Utah throws to the tight ends. They don't just run the ball with three tight ends. They like to get in tight with the tight ends. They shift formations. They'll do that a lot where they'll line up the tight ends one way, then shift the formation, move a tight end to the opposite side, drop somebody back off the line, and then they'll run and they'll throw out of that. Nathan, it is a very specific way of doing business. The Browns, run 13 personnel like 20% of the time. That's twice as much as anybody else in the NFL. But if you like that style of offense, it is a very specific way to play. And then those tight ends are do-it-all dudes, and Utah has three of them. But it's, just, it's not something you see a ton of. Like, I get the Michigan thing in terms of, hey, run the ball, whatever. But this specific use of 13 personnel, I think, is even rare compared to anybody else Ohio State seen. Yeah, and I just think it's a – it's an interesting dichotomy of how to put together a team because when you play that many tight ends, you're giving your offense 
a certain level of, of physicality. That's like, that's your base identity is you're putting these kind of stout guys on the field who do what they do and, and have a lot of this, those typical tight end skills. But then at the same time, you scheme them into something bigger. You're scheming them into space. They throw to those guys. They get those guys in space a lot and get them the ball. And that way you're not, you know, it's not the same as when you're throwing to Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson, obviously you're not like they can kind of create some of those big explosive opportunities on their own. I feel like with Utah, it comes a little bit more through the scheme at the same time, it can still be tremendously effective. And I'm really eager to see, uh, curious to see how how state responds to that dichotomy of knowing that it has to step up and handle the physical nature, but also the discipline of how Utah then attacks off of that sort of that, that run heavy base that it, it brings into these games. Is it a bad matchup, Steven? Like, is, is this Ohio state defense? Is it a bad matchup to play a team that uses three tight ends as this much? I don't know if it's a, I don't know if I'd use bad. It's definitely a weird matchup because uh, Ohio state's linebackers have had a problem stopping the run. I don't know if they've been bad at necessarily covering covering as much, but also I don't know how many tight ends they played this year that have required them to cover at such a high level as often as you know Utah is going to make you do, especially since it's a lot more by committee. They've only got one guy on the team with over 500 uh, receiving yards this year. It's very much, it's 480, it's 534, it's 465, 236, 356. It's much more by committee. And so it's not a bad matchup, but you're really asking for Ohio State's linebackers, especially to have a lot of discipline because it's very much a lot of times nowadays, especially with pro style systems, you see teams go 13 personnel or 12 personnel just to throw, just to catch you, you know, sleeping to go deep. They're going to just be in 13 and 12 personnel just to be in 13 and 12 personnel. You're not really sure what they're going to run. And so you've kind of kind of ha- you have to have your eyes open for everything. And so I think Utah has an opportunity to catch Ohio State on some things, especially in the first half. Utah averages 29 passing attempts per game. That ranks 83rd in the country. By comparison, Michigan and Georgia are 102 and 103 in the country in passing attempts per game. Michigan is 27.6. Georgia is 26.9. So Michigan and Georgia in that semifinal like to run it even more. Cincinnati, another semifinalist, 94th in the country in passing attempts per game, 283 this is a, a, a specific but kind of popular way to win. Michigan State's right above Utah in passing attempts per game. Iowa is in this similar range. Nebraska is in this similar range, Nathan, where you want to run first. I mean, clearly, Ohio State is up in the top 20. They're 17th, Ohio State, and passing attempts per game at 37.3. So Ohio State's going to throw it eight more times per game than Utah but it's just the way they're going to throw it. Because Ron, as much as we bemoan single high safety for Ohio State a lot of times this year, I, I think this is what they might do in this game because you're not going to be worried about the deep threat and you want the extra guy in the box. And I feel like Ronnie Hickman's coming back down to the box. And then I also don't know with 13 personnel, 13, not just two tight ends, three tight ends. That means five offensive linemen, a quarterback, that's six. A running back, that's seven. Three tight ends, that's 10. That's one receiver. That cover safety, man. Like, oh, Craig Young. Craig yeah. Young, we hardly knew ye. He left like, too soon. <laughs> in a world where we wondered about 
Ohio State putting two linebackers on the field. This, Nathan, this feels to me like a three linebacker plus Ronnie Hickman kind of game. And, and half the time, I mean, not that you're going to take Denzel Burke and that Cam Brown seven bank spot off the field, but they're going to be in run support a lot. Again, how, what's the right matchup personnel and scheme-wise, Nathan, for Ohio State when this is a, a foundational personnel grouping for Utah? I think you're probably onto something with going back to a, a single high safety look against a team like this. I think you do want a lot of guys in the box. But I also think that we're going to get back to a scheme versus discipline or scheme versus approach argument, potentially, depending on how this game goes. Because I think it, it what, what's interesting is, as we were talking about that before, it made me think, like, the mindset Ohio State is bringing into this game is them coming in and we have to prove how physical we are. We have to prove that we weren't a soft team. We have to prove that we're not finesse. And I think Steven is right that this, this I guess we're all kind of saying it, this Utah offense makes you think a lot. So you can't just be like bull in a China shot playing defense against this team. I think you have to, but you also can't be like, stuck on your feet thinking about things because they're going to, they're going to use that against you. It's going to be a, a pretty cerebral game as much as Utah um, has a lot of, you know, physical girth and just that, that strength behind them. I think this is going to test how well Ohio state uh, plays, you know, gap discipline defense and, and is in the right place when it needs supposed to be. I wonder how much they'll get caught in between. Cause for instance, Marcus Williamson has been that cover safety who they put in the game, I think because of his ability to make tackles and play the run and be in the box. And then you have to figure out, I guess the two corners will stay on the field. Ronnie Hickman will probably come down and be in the box a lot, but let's say that Ohio state for whatever reason would have, I just don't know how much it'll be, but say they did have Marcus Williamson and Ronnie Hickman on the field with two true linebackers with steel chambers and Tommy Eichenberg. Then I think you run, you have 13 personnel, but then you run. If Marcus Williamson and Ronnie Hickman are down, you run. If you start taking some of those guys, if you take Marcus Williamson off the field, and let's say, and I think we'll see this, I think we'll see Cody Simon, Tommy Eichenberg, and Steel Chambers play together. Mm -hmm. I think we'll see, which we didn't see a ton of this year. If you have those three guys in the game together against 13, now you throw. Now Tommy Eichenberg's in coverage. Now Steel Chambers is in coverage. Now Cody Simon, he's covered a tight end, but it's like a tight end who's used to catching the ball. I think there's going to be – I'll be curious how Ohio State settles on their base defense for this game. Who are the 11 guys that you put out there in a normal set? And I will just tell you again, this 13 personnel thing. According to PFF, in the Pac-12 championship game, Utah had 70 snaps of offense. Their top three tight ends – it's Dalton Kincaid, Cole Fotheringham. I am going to create a tight end name generator on, on Twitter, somehow that you can do it. Cole Fotheringham is even pushing the envelope. It's like, that doesn't sound real. And then Brant Keithy. They combined in that game for 151 snaps. So that was an average of 2.2 tight ends on the field per snap. Okay. So that's, there's always two. There's often three. The top three receivers for Utah, Devon Veely, Solomon Enos, and Britton Covey, 
they were on the field for a combined 111 snaps. Then they had a couple of the other receivers get a few snaps, 13 snaps. That's 124 total snaps for receivers that I counted. That's 1.8 receivers on the field per snap. Okay. So doesn't mean they never have two receivers on the field, but it's often two tight ends and two receivers and a decent chunk of the time. It's three tight ends and one receiver. I just, I don't love it. <laughs> Steven, I don't love it for Ohio state that, that this, like this is not a big Denzel Burke game to me. This is not a big pin your ears back. Zach Harrison and Tyreek Smith and Jack Sawyer and JT oh. to and go get the quarterback kind of game. This is a Haskell Garrett game. This is a Tyreek Williams game. This is a Ty Hamilton game. This is Tommy Eichenberg and Cody Simon putting their noses in gaps a lot game. And I think it's a Ronnie Hickman in the box game. Ohio State has issues on defense. I don't love this for the Ohio State defense, Stephen. You only love it if the offense just starts scoring points. And so then it doesn't matter because then they have to put three wide receivers on the field and throw the ball. But, but to the point, but yeah, actually, that's, that, not, you can't, that's not actually true. I think they'd still throw out a 13 person. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, they, yeah they're still they're going <laughs> to just be stubborn with it and keep throwing the tight ends. Um, why can't we did like a breakdown of what we think that the lineup might be, I think, last week. And I pretty much I said that it could be Court Williams and Ronnie Hickman on the field together. Why can't that start on January 1st? Well, that Court Williams, we there were a couple times right early on. Didn't we see Ronnie Hickman and Craig Young together in certain yes. situations that Court Williams mm-hmm. is just in that spot now instead of Craig Young? Maybe that's it. Court Williams has been tweeting that he wants he thinks he should play more. Nathan, is that is that it? Is this Court Williams game? That maybe it's not Eichenberg, Simon, and Chambers playing all together, but it's a lot of Court Williams acting like a linebacker? I think that might make more sense to me than the other three linebackers playing together, just because none of those three linebackers and, and maybe we might make, maybe I'm making too big a deal of this. And maybe we were thinking retrospect, we made too little of a deal with this. Those have all been inside linebackers all year. And I think playing Sam linebacker and putting yourself out in space is a different skill set. And if none of them have repped that much at all this year, now they've got bowl practice to do it. Maybe they've been doing it in these, these weeks preparing for this specific opponent. So maybe they would be fine. I'm just, I don't know. I mean, of those three guys, Chambers is probably the only one you're putting out in space, right? And him and Court are pretty much the same size. They're both 6'1". Chambers has five pounds on him, but they're both pretty much around 6'1", 220. So he can do that job, which solves a lot of the issues of, oh, no, they're in 13 personnel. We're not sure what they're doing. If you have a guy who is flashed that he can stop in the run, but then also he's got coverage skills because he's a safety. It just could be a, a lot of covering tight ends. I, I'm just trying to think. What game has Ohio State played this year where going into it, we talked a lot about the need to cover the tight end because the tight end is such a weapon. No, that, we talk, wasn't. Was there one? There wasn't. There wasn't that many on this on this schedule. And the thing is, though, like if I had to think, I mean, you'd rather have Ronnie Hickman, maybe even someone like, Lathan Ransom actually covering a tight end, but the more times you put Lathan Ransom on the field instead of a linebacker, you're leaving yourself vulnerable elsewhere. Yeah, this is going to be an evolution of the defense that I think is like a one-time evolution, that it's it's maybe in between what they were and what they're going to be with Jim Knowles, and they just got to figure out for right now what to do. 
again, to reemphasize this, Brant Keithy is their leading receiver, 534 yards, and then Dalton Kincaid is their third leading receiver, 465. So of their their two of their three leading receivers are tight ends, and then Cole Fotheringham has 109 receiving yards this season. So he's not as much as, as involved in the passing game. Their second leading receiver is Britton Covey. He's a little guy. He's like a little 5'8 slot guy. So, mm-hmm. so it really is not a Denzel Burke game. Like this is not the, the, the closest, like the guy who's most like their sort of typical receiver. It's Devon Veely. He's a 6'4 freshman. He has 21 catches. So that, that'll be Burke's guy. He's 17 yards um, per reception. Nobody else on the team. Uh, someone's at 15. Someone's at 14. So he's their closest thing to a big play threat. But like they're just not going to do that. They're just going to move the ball down the field, throwing to tight ends, and they're also going to do it running it. And I find this to be one of the most interesting things of bowl season. Cincinnati, their starting running back is an Alabama transfer. And it's one of these things when you look at Cincinnati and you say, hey, can Cincinnati really hang with Alabama? And it's like, well, Their running back is an Alabama transfer. One of their receivers is a Notre Dame transfer. They have a couple other transfers in there. Desmond Ritter's a big-time dude. Alec Pierce at receiver is a big-time dude. You start going through, and Cincinnati has a lot of power five talent at important spots on the field, right? And Utah's best running back is a Cincinnati transfer. (laughs) And it's like when you look at Luke Fickle's first recruiting class at Cincinnati and how impactful it is for this Cincinnati team that made the playoff, the running back in that class – was first team all Pac-12 for Utah because he was at Cincinnati for a year and then he went to junior college and now he's at Utah. Tavion Thomas, 1,041 rushing yards this season uh, and 20 touchdowns. He's a real dude and he started at Cincinnati, but they also move guys in and out. Again, in the Pac-12 championship game, Thomas had 24 snaps. TJ Pledger, their next running back had 22 and a freshman, Micah Bernard, I think he's a freshman, had 20. So it's almost an equal timeshare. And those three running backs, Thomas, 1,041 rushing yards, Pledger, 671, Micah Bernard, 492. Their average yards, uh, yards per carry, Thomas is 5.6, Pledger, 6.9, Bernard's 5.9. Nathan, they got guys who could run it. Their backup running back is better than Ohio State's backup running back right now. That's no offense to Mayan Williams, but like they, they play these guys almost equally. And again, Thomas was first team all pack 12. Yeah. Thomas is an Ohio guy, by the way, and was almost, I mean, he was recruited by Ohio state. Um, I think there were some academic questions that, and, and just the way that those, the class was stacking up at the time that didn't make sense for Ohio state to, to go down that road from what I remember at the reading back to, but um, no, I, I think that it, again, it's, I, I look at like what Utah could do to this Ohio state defense as maybe more of like winning a war of attrition in some ways than the way that Oregon and Michigan beat them. But it doesn't mean it can't be just as effective that it's not just like it, it just more of a relentlessness than having to really worry about like the big play. But because Ohio state's discipline has been vulnerable at times, it makes me think that the big play is probably there too. But with that being said, They've got three running backs, but they don't necessarily use them all the exact same way. Uh, Thomas is obviously just like their back. That's their, if they have a work, the clo- he's the closest thing to a workhorse. While the pledger is more like, they'll use him in the passing game as well, but also he gets like ca- carries. While Bernard has clearly shown himself to be their passing threat. 
I mean, he's got 24 catches for 236 yards and a touchdown there. So of the three, who is going to be the pass catcher? If he's in the game, that uh, then Ohio State needs to be alert that they're probably going to throw it out of the backfield and try to get him the ball out in space. If Tavion Thomas is in the game, they need to be on alert that, hey, they're probably going to try to run it down your throat and get him going while with T.J. Pledger, it's a little bit of everything. The Utah is 13th in the nation in rushing yards per game with 217. Utah is 87th in the nation in passing yards per game with 213. So they're actually pretty balanced. But again, that balance is kind of rare. Most teams lean toward the pass game. I will tell you, I think I was watching, I think it was the first Oregon game when I noticed this. They had a third and nine in the red zone and a third and five in the red zone. And both times... They ran the ball. They pulled the guard and pulled the tight end and just ran like a power running play on third and nine in the red zone. And Thomas scored a touchdown. And it was like, oh, yeah, uh, oh, like that's how confident they in a run game. Nathan, you must have seen some of that same stuff. Like they will just they never give up on it. And you can see. And again, that reminds me a lot of the Browns. I know there are some Browns fans listening to this. Some people don't give two squats about the Browns. But that's what the Browns do best when they hand it to Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb and they get their guards out pulling and they start getting guys in space. They have some linemen who can get in space and those tight ends who can get in space and block. And if you get, if you find a groove on that, man, sometimes like it feels like you can run that day, all, uh, run that way all day. I think there's a lot of instances of bold decisions that they make on offense. And I, I, I did notice some of those kind of things that you're talking about. And really it's, it's not, I know that in the modern way of thinking about football, that seems radical, but if you're an offense that gets a defensive matchup at that point, like third and nine, if you decide to run the ball, you've probably got a, a advantageous defensive alignment on the other side, right? They probably substituted like they're more of a coverage defense in that moment. So it makes them even more susceptible if you hit the play. And it's just a matter of like having the stones, I guess, to call that play there. It, to me, I think I think there's a lot of teams that it could would have the personnel to do it if they just committed to doing it. And they have that confidence. You're right. I think they have that confidence that they especially maybe especially in those situations that they can run the ball on whoever they want to. And that I think is similar to Michigan, right? That Michigan gets creative. They do a little they have some creativity in the run game. They'll they'll do a little bit with side of the jet sweep stuff. Right. It's not just pound a guy into the line and that's all we're going to do. It's not, you know, it's, it's not boring. It just is run heavy. So there are some similarities to Michigan and some different things about Michigan. We'll take a quick break. We got to come back and talk about the quarterback for the Utah Utes. We'll do that next on Buckeye talk. Doug, Nathan, Steven, I will tell you when I look at a team like this, how do I, I don't want to say this the wrong way. I mean, I just doing the playoff show and stuff. When you're looking at a team through the course of the season, you're looking for a team that's not Bama, not Ohio State, not Clemson, not Oklahoma, right? Not, not Texas A&M, not, not recruiting at the top, top, top of the world. So then how can they puncture that world? How do they get into that world? And a lot of times I think it does come down to, do you have elite sort of power five dudes at key positions? And that we don't expect... I did this a lot with Utah, with Iowa State coming into this year, right? And, and you did it a lot with Cincinnati. But it's like when you looked at Iowa State, it's like, all right, well, 
Brees Hall's pretty good. Whatever his recruiting ranking was, that guy's a real dude, and they're going to put the ball in his hands a lot at running back. And then they had a guy named Xavier Hutchinson, who I loved, who was like a top-level power five kind of recruit at receiver. And it's like, okay, I see how that can work. Cam Rising, who took over as Utah's starting quarterback in the fourth game of the year, was originally an Oklahoma commit, then changed his mind and went to Texas, and then mm-hmm. transferred away from Texas and is at Utah. So, Stephen, like, their quarterback – is an Oklahoma or a Texas quarterback. It's like, oh, Utah, I don't know. It's like, well, at an important position, the running back is a guy who Ohio State like might have taken if the circumstances were a little different in Tavion Thomas. That's how good that guy is. And their quarterback is a Texas-Oklahoma-level quarterback. Cam Rising's a real dude, Stephen. I don't think there's any doubt about that. It was, he wasn't the only quarterback in that Texas class either. He was joined by Casey Thompson. Um, so... Texas, once again, with the two quarterback thing there. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he's starting level at a healthy Texas program or a healthy Oklahoma program, but yeah, he's, he's good enough to be a guy who could be in the mix. If like you had a quarterback battle, he could make his case, which often that's the type of guy when you live in that world or you of going every other year that if he spends a year or two developing at one of these blue blood programs and then a school like a, I don't know, Oregon or Utah in this situation goes to get him. He could be a difference maker for your team. And why we're talking about Utah the way we are right now, in a sense that is this a bad matchup for Ohio State, especially if they're not asking him to do a whole lot. They're not asking him to go out there and throw the ball 35 plus times and pick apart Ohio State's defense. They're really just asking him to be a game manager and he could do that. Cam Rising was the number 22 overall quarterback in the class of 2018. He was the number 247 overall player in the country. Some other quarterbacks in that class, Matthew Baldwin, who was the Ryan Day find that they flipped from Colorado State, who was another Texas quarterback that, believe it or not, at one point, people at Ohio State were high on. He was 27th in that class. So this guy was ranked ahead of Matthew Baldwin, who was Ohio State's uh, recruit there. Um, Michael Penix, number 40 quarterback in that class. Spencer Petrus, who was the starting quarterback for Iowa this year, number 37 quarterback in that class. So uh, Cam Rising is ahead of all those guys. Gary Bohannon, who was Baylor's starting quarterback this year. He was number 20 in that class. Joe Milton, one time at Michigan, transferred to Tennessee. He was 18th. Uh, Tyler Shuck was in there. These are guys who were ranked ahead of Cam Rising. Tyler Shuck, Adrian Martinez, Emery Jones, Phil Jerkovic, who committed Notre Dame and then transferred to Boston College. Matt Corral at Old Miss. JT Daniels and then Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence were number two and number one in that class. But that matters to me, Nathan, that that's the inherent talent level of this guy. And then you, you have to take into account that they are nine and one with him as a starting quarterback. They are one and two before he was the starting quarterback. Well, let's talk about specifically about Cam rising the way he plays. He does seem physical. He'll take, He'll take running lanes if they are there, but he he's kind of pretty broad shouldered kind of quarterback, not a guy who's going to chuck it down the field a ton, but it feels like he can make the intermediate throws. And it feels like they believe in this dude. Well, like you reading off all of those yards per carry for the, the rest of the backfield cam rising's yards per carry this year, 6.5. And he's not, but, but you point out, he's not mobile in the way that Justin Fields is mobile or in the way that we like, I think, in general, think of mobile quarterbacks. He is a between-the-tackles mobile quarterback. Yeah. Uh, but very effective there. I mean, he's you can just look back through the season. He just went 61 yards on nine carries against Oregon, 
Um, only had eight yards the first time they played. They had another 63-yard game with a touchdown against UCLA, 73 yards against Oregon State, 59 yards against Arizona State, um, 46 yards against San Diego State. Like, that's actually some of the better teams that they played on the schedule this year, and he was productive on the ground against all of those teams. So, again, it's just this the, – all the layers of the onion that this this offense is – that Ohio State has to figure out. Uh, to me, it, a lot of it is still going to come back to defense. It's going to come back to defensive discipline. Like, do they have, does Ohio State have the discipline for all of these various factors? Because I think they will challenge um, the, the, the standard notion of playing defense in some ways. Like, I don't think Ohio State has faced a quarterback like this all year. And for what it's worth, some of this is because of how they play football, but he's only been sacked five times. So those mm-hmm. rushing yards are, are real. That's not that's not with most, it was Justin Fields. A lot of time you had to say, now, imagine if you didn't get sacked and lost 11 yards on that play. I mean, you don't have to do that here. These are all real yards because he's being a force in the running game. His average game is six carries for 36 yards. But as Nathan said, he's got a bunch of games, 50 here, 60 there, that if it's one of those games where they need it, he will take it. His average passing game is 17 of 26 for 210 yards as the starter. I was trying to think of a comparison that maybe the closest would be like if Sean Clifford was good, <laughs> like, is that because Clifford's a little bit to me, Clifford will be a little bit physical kind of in the well, run game sometimes. And, but he's like more erratic. I don't think Cam rising is erratic. I think he'll take what's there and then be physical when he needs to be. I, I'd like to see what Sean Clifford, if you just flopped him, what would Sean Clifford's numbers have been if he played on a team with a fully adequate offense? Like give, give Sean Clifford a run game and it makes Sean Clifford the runner better. He just didn't have one this year at Penn state. Yeah. But I think, I think that's maybe the closest comparison in that it's not, it's not the athletic out in space, wily flashing guy. It's really more of like a guy who will just, he's, he is, he's physical. He's hard nosed. He'll get in and thump it. And then they play off of that with what they do over the top in the passing game. Again, a lot of it is, and then the passing game, a lot of it is tight ends in the middle of the field and this Britton Covey little slot guy. It is not a ton of stuff down the field. And then the, here's the conversation I, I, want, I want to have. I have a couple questions from the texters I want to work in too. <laughs> I feel a little bit like a crazy person saying this. So Utah, in two of his first three games, they beat Weber State and then they lost to BYU and they lost to San Diego State. And actually, could someone call up the playoff rankings, actually, if if we wouldn't mind real quick, from the last playoff rankings of the season? I think BYU and San Diego State are like the second and third best non-Power 5 teams in the country behind Cincinnati. I think that's right, because BYU was like 13th or something in the final playoff rankings. uh, BYU is 13th. Who else did you say? San Diego State. San Diego State is 24th. And San Diego State just like finished off a bowl win and won 12 games this year. Like Sandy, yeah. that's Brady Hope. San Diego State had like a really good year. Both and the, the San Diego State Utah game was like triple overtime. And Rising, I think, came in at the end of that game. I don't even, the guy, it was a Brewer. It was a Brewer who transferred, who was like Michael Brewer's brother, I think. Michael Brewer was Charlie, Bu- Charlie Brewer. He had four, he was 48 of 79 on the year with three touchdowns and three interceptions. He's a Lake Travis guy, I think, right? Garrett Wilson, Baker Mayfield. I think he's a Lake think Matthew Baldwin. I think he's a Lake Travis guy. But I think he's the brother of Michael Brewer, who's a Virginia Tech quarterback in 2014 that beat yeah. Ohio State. Yeah, he um, is. Look at you. I know my Brewers. Uh, Robin Yount, Cecil Cooper. Uh, now I'm naming Brewers. Maybe. I don't even know if those people are real or not. So, because I, I don't know baseball. I love Cecil Cooper, man. Woo. So, 
here's the thing. So you just have to think, just throw that out. Just like, I mean, if you want to, you can throw out the Ohio State Oregon game because they changed their whole defense and whatever. And I get it. You can't, but you kind of can when you change your starting quarterback. I think you have to think of Utah as a nine and one team. Don't think of them as a three loss team because they, they changed their starting quarterback. They picked the wrong guy at the beginning of the year. They picked the wrong guy and it killed him. Think of them as a nine and one team. Their only losses to Oregon State, which is a little bit of a weird loss. Oregon State, like, is is coming. Oregon State is almost like U- Indiana last year. It's, Oregon State got blown up by Ohio State a couple years ago, but Jonathan Smith's a good coach, and people like him, and they're going to get better. But that's a little bit of a weird loss for Utah. If they were to pick the right quarterback, Nathan, and they had one loss, they might be in the playoff. Like they might have given Cincinnati some trouble for that four spot. And so it's not really a playoff debate, but I just think you have to think of Utah as a nine and one team and that maybe they would have found a way to beat San Diego state and BYU if they had the right quarterback. I think that might be a fairer assessment of how good they are. And in that world, I don't exactly mean what I'm going to say, but I mean it at least a tiny bit. Is it possible that, Utah is better than Ohio state. Like we're going to have a motivation question here in a second from a texter, but I'm not talking about motivation. I'm not caring to talk about who cares about the game more. I'm just talking about the teams on the field because Utah destroyed Oregon two of the last three weeks. And I know that's not the same Oregon. And that's not why I'm saying this. I'm just saying the level that, Utah has played at, and it's basically their Pac-12 schedule because their first three games were non-conference games, and then the 10 games that Rising has been the quarterback, it's nine regular season Pac-12 games in the Pac-12 championship. In those games, the average score for Utah is 37 to 19. So they're nine and one, and the total adding up, even with the loss in there, it's 37 to 19. Ohio State, since the – no, what did I do? I did – all the Big Ten games. So I took out Oregon, Tulsa, and Akron. So I just did your conference schedule for each team. Average point total for Utah is 37-19. For Ohio State, it's 46-21. And that folds in the Michigan loss, right? So on one hand, all year we thought Ohio State might have been the best team to try to take down Georgia. I think you could have made a, a strong argument during most of the regular season that Ohio state was the second best team in the country, but with where we are right now, not motivation, Nathan football. Is it a discussion about who the better team is? I think it's a discussion about who the more complete team is. And if you want to say if that makes if more complete means better then sure. I'll have that discussion. I think there's a conversation as to whether a guy we haven't talked about yet, Devin Lloyd is going to be the best football player on the field for that game. He doesn't play for Ohio State. I think there's going to be, uh, yeah, I think you can have that conversation. And I think that um, part of it is maybe just, it, it, could you also argue that, that one program better assessed its personnel and built its season around that personnel than Ohio State did? Can you argue that Utah did that? I think you could. So, so Stephen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a caveat in. You're, you're doing your, your my yeah. head's about to explode face. Utah does not have more good players than Ohio State. And we are, haven't gotten to the other side of the ball yet. And I think the thing that has been the case all year with Ohio State, which is, is their offense so good that nothing else matters, that is back on the table for this game. 
That is mm-hmm. very, very possible that someone will cut out the clip of Doug asking, is Utah a better team than Ohio State? And post it right after Ohio State drops 80 on Utah. I, I acknowledge that. But I think Nathan did phrase it better. Sort of like more complete team is maybe a better way to even approach having this discussion. Go ahead. I think Ohio, I think Utah's coaching staff has been better than Ohio State's coaching staff this year because they had an issue and they fixed the issue. And outside of that weird loss to Oregon State, it they were better for it. Ohio State had an issue and they never really fixed it. And some of that is because the personnel didn't allow them to, but more, but they just never fixed it. And they allowed three teams to abuse them. No, four teams really to abuse it. Two of those teams ended up winning the game because of it. So I, I just think they're not better. It's just they play football in a way that other teams have proven to be able to beat Ohio State this season because of this inerrant flaw. It doesn't make them better. It just means they're best equipped. It's the way we've seen Ohio State lose the games basically for the last four or five years here. They lose the teams who are best equipped to attack whatever the inerrant flaw is in Ohio State's team. I think my main point here is that the idea of Utah beating Ohio State is not only a motivation discussion. Right? I, I, th- I think that's the fair thing to say, that there are some football things at play here. Uh, I did grab a couple when we were doing rapid fires. Some people asked specifically about this game. I did try to grab a couple of those from the 7-4-0. Without major changes, does anyone have confidence that the Buckeyes defense can stop the run against a very physical Utah team? I just, it's like, what major changes can they make, Nathan? But I do think a little bit of like scheme adjustment, get an extra bigger body on the field, like the, Probably the big, the biggest change might be like more court Williams. I think maybe we all came around on that, that that was a good, a good suggestion, but I, I don't know that anyone's going to have a ton of confidence, no matter what they do before the game starts. I don't know that anybody could walk into this game and say, Oh no, no, I have confidence that Ohio state is going to stop the Utah run game. No, I mean, why would you? And again, I, to me, it's, I think I keep coming back to this word, but Ohio, Utah does a great job just pounding teams between the tackles. Just they will gash you there. They'll do what you were talking about, where you're pulling guards, you're pulling tight ends both, and somebody's leading the guy through the hole. Like they do that stuff really well. And then what happens, and everybody can picture because they've already seen what happens. What happens when Utah goes away from that? What happens when it's like second and two and Ohio State's expecting that again and instead Utah go does something on the perimeter Utah puts in a little wrinkle then does Ohio State have the discipline to react to that correctly or does Ohio State get caught off guard and it goes for a big play like that's it's it's both things are potentially a problem like just having the uh physicality to with to you know to slow down what Oregon does when it's doing those sort of pinpoint um attacks between the tackles but then also not leaving yourself exposed on the edge on the outside in the second level when they go away from that by, by design. All right. I have another question related to the Rose bowl from a texture from the two, four, eight based upon the player interviews last week, will Ohio state be more motivated to play Utah um, than you thought they were last week? So like that's Steven, it's, it's hard to assess that, but I think that was a reasonable question. We kind of said, Hey, Let's see what we hear. And again, you'll learn more as guys talk more before the Rose Bowl. Do we get a motivational read off that, Stephen? Um, kind of. It's still kind of hard. I think there's a they acknowledge there's a reason to be motivated in a way that maybe there wouldn't have been had Michigan not just you know, ran them off the field. I think the toughness questions that are in play, um, losing the Michigan the way they did, um, all the you know, just all of that stuff 
get, they acknowledge all of those things as reasons for why they can be motivated. But I don't know if we can necessarily get a gauge of if all of that is working or not right now. One, because we don't even know like if their entire team is going to be playing. I think we're all still on the assumption that at least one of Garrett Wilson or Chris Olave won't be playing in that game. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Uh, I do think I do, I do think the idea that they are playing a team that people can comp- compare to Michigan, I think, helps the motivational factor. Mm-hmm. And if you all right, we lost to Michigan this way. And if you were coming out and playing Mississippi State and Mike Leach is chucking it around and everybody's going five wides, it would be like, a well, I don't know. Is anything connected to anything? It's almost like. I don't know. Michigan's the big brother and Michigan beat you. And it's like, well, now I'll go beat up the little brother and see if that can make you feel any better. You know that again, I just, but I also want to emphasize again, Utah was 11th in the final playoff standings. Again, I think you could make a case. Like, are we sure Baylor's better than them and Ole Miss is better than them and Oklahoma state's better than them. I, I, I just think this is legitimately a top 10 team. So I do think Nathan, the Michigan connection and the fact I do think some of the time, sometimes I don't believe it when coaches say it, but I do think a little bit this is a put on the film and it'll motivate Ohio State kind of thing because they're good, man. Well, when we had those conversations last week and they're getting those questions about toughness and they're, I think, feeling a little bit like they need to defend their pride. And I'm sure that is a motivation a little bit right now. They need to, Ohio State, you know, we, we feel like you know, people are saying we're not tough enough and we're having physical practices. It's been really physical since we got back at it. So I think they are motivated to prove they are not soft and that they are a tough team and that they are physical. I don't know that that means that they are motivated to do the schematic discipline things needed to beat Utah. I think that's a different question to some extent. Like, are they going to be almost too worried about the first thing and not focused enough on the second thing? Okay. I think, I, I, I think there's a, some complicated stuff tied up in there, but I don't think in the end, this game will play out as, Hey, Utah beat Ohio State because Ohio State didn't care. That if right. that was, I, I don't think that's what we're looking at here. I think Utah might beat it, Ohio State, but it, it won't be just that. It might be on the list, but it might be reason number eight. Yes. Yes. I think that's, I, th- I think I agree with that. I think we're also, again, we're going to be a few weeks removed from the season. There's going to be some guys potentially who play in this game that we haven't talked about yet or haven't talked about much who are using this game as an opportunity to prove themselves for next year. So there's going to be some mm-hmm. individual motivations that play into this beyond this like roster wide program wide motivation. So that's, this is a little bit off the path, but I saved it as a texture question because it did, it was specifically about the Rose bowl, which Buckeye or Buckeye should we watch closest in the Rose bowl to preview 2022. So, so maybe that's a guy who didn't play much, or maybe this guy who does play a lot, but really he's going to matter even more next year. Is there a guy I might say court Williams? Like if we, if the actual court Williams things happen, like court Williams thought he should play more. We talked about that off player interviews. He admitted that to you, Nathan. Yes. I think I should play more. We think maybe this is a game where he does play more. And I think we might get a better read on him. Court Williams would be a guy I would put on that list. Nathan, who would you put on that list? I think he's good. I would put Dewan Jones on this list. He was somebody who came out of the Michigan game, I think, with uh, some some pride at stake. And I know that we saw him play pretty well all season, but I think he's somebody that probably needs a bounce back game, especially against um, you know to, to, if Ohio State is trying to match Oregon's running game and keeping Oregon off the field with this running game. I think he's a guy that probably has a little something to to prove in this game. Anybody else jumping to mind for you, Stephen? I very much want to see Julian Fleming. Mm. I, 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 
I think he this game is of the list of players where it's like who is who is the Rose Bowl most important to individually. I think he might be number one or number two because let's Garrett and Chris are not coming back. So there's two open wide receiver spots and he's done some things, but not enough to like make me feel like, oh, that's why he was the number one wide receiver. And I think he just needs a moment that he can carry with him into the offseason. And when like and then next year, when we get to the Notre Dame game or like halfway through the season, like the Iowa game, if he's showing out and it's like we can all point back to. Hey, Julian, how important was that Rose Bowl game for your mm. confidence? Like you're out there and you're really like it's not you're not just out there because yeah, you're out there because Garrett's not playing, but you're not there's you're out there because they're trying to set up for the future and you use this game to basically catapult the rest of your career here. And in the name of Marshawn Lattimore, Jeff Okuda, or every other player who has used a non-playoff bowl game here as a way to jumpstart their all-American first round, whatever campaign. I just think he is subject, he is suspect number one to be able to do that let's talk about special teams real quick because we're going to get to utah's defense after the next break they're terrible at it one of the reasons they when they lost to oregon state in that game they had a punt blocked for a touchdown and they had another punt blocked that was then called back by a penalty on oregon state but They've had issues with that all year. I think they've given up a couple punt returns for a touchdown. It's weird because because of the changes to the kickoff, it's almost like kickoffs don't matter anymore. And we've often talked about how Ohio State really doesn't try to do much in the punt return game. We almost never talk about special teams other than, hey, Noah Ruggles makes all his field goals. But I, I wonder, Nathan, like it's, it's such a weird thing because Kyle Whittingham – there's a lot of Kyle Whittingham love. There's a lot of like you look on. It's a lot of like Kyle Whittingham's going to be in the College Football Hall of Fame kind of discussion, which is definitely true. And he's an all timer at Utah, and they might build a Kyle, a Kyle Whittingham statue there. And this is like kind of a peak of of what has been a tremendously successful and long career at Utah. And then at that it feels like they'd be the kind of program where they're good at this. It's weird to me that they're so bad at it. And again, they were talking about it. They're playing Oregon, and it's like, all right, Utah's back to punt. It's like, well, let's hope they don't get this block because they're terrible at punts. And it was like, how could they be this bad at it? Can Ohio State take advantage of that in any way? Should we expect that? Oh, I'm sure they'll try to. I'm sure, you know, that's a lot of what special teams is, is just finding whenever we have a game where the team you're covering blocks a punt, does something like that, it always comes back. Oh, yeah, we saw that on film, that that guy – um, took the wrong step and there was something vulnerable there, or we knew that that guy was, you know, we could take that, we could take that gap. We could take that opportunity. And um, the other thing I'm curious about is, is Egbuka, Emeka Egbuka healthy? Cause he was active for the Michigan game, but did not play against Michigan. And I know this isn't punt return, but as far as uh, talking about special teams, does that become an asset again for Ohio state? Does, do they have him healthy enough that he can be back there returning kicks again? I think Ohio state is going to try to block a punt in this game. I mean, they haven't really designed up one this year yet. I, I would suspect that they know that as well, that Utah's had some stuff blocked and they're going to try to do one as well. We know that somebody on the defensive coaching staff can't come back in his current job because they hired Jim Knowles. What if Ryan Day said to Parker Fleming, block a punt, keep your job. If you don't, you're the guy who's <laughs> Who's moving on. We've talked a lot about, I mean, that's Parker Fleming's deal, man. He's the special teams coach. So I'm sure he's watching film and looking for that little, little avenue to try to scoot somebody through. So I see tears of joy in his eyes if they block a punt. Uh, He'll just fall to his knees. I keep my job. 
I don't mean to be dismissive of guys keeping their job, but everybody, everybody will be fine. Everybody will find a job. It just somebody's not going to be here. All right. So the other thing that I just, this was like a nice uplifting question, which I wanted to get to uh, from the Texas subscribers before we get to the next break from the 614 from a Buckeye fan. While this year didn't end up in a playoff berth, I'm still confident about landing in the Rose bowl. As a fan, we had a shortened season with three games ripped away from us last year by COVID that hurt more than a loss. Sometimes as a fan, I'm grateful for the 13 games we got this year because a frustrating Buckeye Saturday is better than no Buckeye Saturday. Thanks for crushing these podcasts and coverage to assist in our fandom and our knowledge. Maybe this will be read on the pod. Maybe not. It was. So Nathan, it's like, you know what? Hey man, can't make the playoff every year. I'm just thankful. We got a whole season in They're going to the Rose bowl. As we are detailing right now, they absolutely got a worthy opponent. This is not, you know, this is, this is not Wake Forest. No offense to Wake Forest who at the moment has no opponent. Listen, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon and we're not dropping it till Thursday morning. Who knows what has happened in the past 12 hours, but Texas A&M dropped out of the Gator Bowl because of COVID tests and Wake Forest doesn't have an opponent. The college football playoff semifinals on Wednesday announced that all the access is going to be remote. I actually was going to go to the Orange Bowl to like sort of do the college football survivor show and do playoff stuff there. But now there's no reason to go. So I'm not going to go. I'm going to get on Zoom calls and like get on the Zoom interviews for both playoff games in addition to keeping tabs in Ohio State. But like, we don't know what's happening. I don't think we're not thinking about the moment like, hey, the Rose Bowl is going to be canceled. But stuff's moving and Omicron is here and we don't know what's going to happen. But before the next wave of the virus wipes out bowl season, Nathan, can we revel in the fact that we had so far a full college football season? And does this Ohio state fan have the right attitude? Yeah, I think he does. They do. I guess I shouldn't say assume it's a he, um, they, they have the right attitude. And I think obviously the best thing for Ohio state would have been if they'd beaten Michigan. I'm not in for this, like, silver lining stuff or this is the best thing that could have happened to them because now it causes some correction but how ohio state handles the second best option here could end up being a positive thing for the future as long as they recognize it is the second best option which i think i think they clearly do but i think what happens now i think as much with individual development as anything else again I think that may be important than more important than this like team wide mindset stuff that can kind of fluctuate depending on the day. But like individual guys coming in and feeling like they have something to prove and do something about it for the next eight months, I think maybe makes this team better. So it's it's not like every it's not like this is just an exhibition with nothing to be gained. I think there are things through these bowl practices, through this bowl experience that can help Ohio State be better in 2022. Okay, we'll take a quick break. We're going to come back and talk about. The Utah defense versus the Ohio State offense next on Buckeye Talk. Doug, Nathan, Stephen, we got to talk about Devin Lloyd, who, as Nathan said, is very possibly the best football player in this game on the uh, like the mock draft consensus database website thing. Whoever's put out a mock draft so far. Garrett Wilson is 10th on that list, like projected as the number 10 pick in the draft. Devin Lloyd is 11th. And he's the first linebacker off the board. So that's the kind of guy we're talking about. That's the kind of guy we're talking about. And we'll get into him. But I want to ask this question first, Stephen, because we have asked it all year. Is it possible that none of this matters because CJ Stroud and whichever receivers show up are just going to do their thing and that's it? 
Is that on the table? Um, yeah, very much so. Literally. But I do think there's, it depends. I, I, it does. It depends on like the mental mistakes that Ohio State's offense has been prone to make in some of these games, like the Penn State game, really the Oregon game too, and the Michigan game, as we saw. If they don't have those mental mistakes, and yes, then none of this matters. Ohio State's going to score 45-plus points, and that's just going to be what it is. Um, but if they don't, then like Devin Lloyd could have like some, you know, Josh Ross moments or some Noah Sewell moments where, you know, Ohio State tries to run the ball and he explodes through a hole and, you know, he's in Travion Henderson's lap as soon as he gets handed off the ball. I think it's on the table. And I also think that maybe Ohio State should throw it 60 times in this game and just throw it over Devin Lloyd and throw it before Mike Tafua who leads the Pac-12 in sacks, can get to you. And as much, I, I don't know how much Utah has seen that this year. There's not a lot of passing attacks like Ohio State. There's not, a, you know, unless you're, I don't even know. I don't even know who the, who's the second best passing attack in the country this year. For real. I'm not even being stupid. Like who's the second best, not even just statistically. What, who's the second best passing team in the country? I feel like I can't, because like Cincinnati. No, Alabama offensively. Have to be up there. Uh, Alabama's next. Okay, I guess Bryce Young um, and Jamison Williams. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I Alabama. Mean, but statistically, Pittsburgh, the top Pittsburgh five are – Oh, Pittsburgh, yeah. Statistically, the top ten are Western Kentucky, Virginia, Mississippi State, Nevada, Ohio State, Pittsburgh, Alabama, Purdue, Fresno State, and Miami. All right. No Pac-12 teams in there. So I just don't know that they've seen it, and I just think the – Speed and explosiveness on the outside, Nathan. Again, no matter who's there, I just think might be it. I, I really do think that's possible that CJ Stroud throws for 500 yards and Utah is a really, really good football team that cannot handle the skill and precision of a passing attack like that. Is that on the table for you? Oh, sure. I mean, that was on the table against Michigan. It just, it just didn't happen. One team out executed the other team. So I think it's always on the table. When, when If Ohio State clicks, and you know, you're always, as we've said so many times, like, and we've seen it. We saw it happen with Purdue. We saw it happen with some other teams, Michigan State. Like, you're one mistake away from just triggering an avalanche that buries you against Ohio State. Like, you make one little goof, you know, you get the punt blocked, or you uh, you fumble, you let a ball, uh, you kick a ball out of bounds on a kick. Just dumb little things can the, the the domino effect can be pretty catastrophic against Ohio State's offense. So the Ohio State or Oregon or Utah, sorry, can't open itself up to that sort of problem uh, because it isn't explosive on offense in the same way that Ohio State is. It, it can scheme those things open, but they're not quite as always within reach as Ohio State is. So one of the things that I said a lot on the, when Shahan and I on the, on the survivor show broke down Georgia, Michigan was that Alabama had Bryce young and Jamison Williams. And that was like a very specific way to beat Georgia. But if you don't have Bryce young and Jamison Williams, like Georgia is still Georgia. And I think maybe you might have the, maybe a little bit like want to forget how good Georgia was. Cause it's like, well, well Alabama exposed. It's like, okay, well, most people don't have that. I also think maybe Ohio state 
was like really good all year. Like they were really good. And then they ran into a team that it's easy to compare. Hey, they're a physical team. Like Michigan is like a surgeon running the ball. They ran the ball. Like they're so good at it. And they had such good play calls in there. Like they just, it was an absolute clinic of running the ball. Plus it snowed and a couple of high state guys were sick. And it's like, okay, well, those are all true. And it's not an excuse. And Michigan absolutely deserved to win that game. But, you know, if you don't have all those factors in place, Stephen, maybe we're back to where we were the week before when it was like, oh, yeah, no, Ohio State scored seven touchdowns in the first half. Every time they touch the ball, they score a touchdown. Oh, yeah, no, it's impossible to stop. Cool, Ohio State scores 60. Like, that's That's like, have we forgotten maybe how good Ohio State is because that Michigan game sort of all the things went against them. Yeah, because if it doesn't happen, then you can have a 42 to 27 loss or you can have a 35 to 28 loss because this defense is, the offense is what it is, but the defense is so bad at times that the whole, oh, the offense is so awesome that it doesn't matter. Well, it has, that has to be the case every single week because the moment it's not, it can backfire very quickly. So because the, the defense is so flawed, the perfect version of this offense has to show up every single week. So that's almost the question you have to ask as well. It's like, all right, this offense is awesome, but are we sure it's going to show up? Because if not, then yeah, Ohio State's going to lose, lose in the Rose Bowl. It has to show up every week against really good opponents. It doesn't necessarily have to show up every week against Maryland and Rutgers and Indiana, um, even though they won all those games by blowing teams out. But if it doesn't show up against even someone like Nebraska, you're vulnerable. So on the board, Ohio State's offense is so good. Nothing else we're saying on this podcast matters on the board. Devin Lloyd, 6'3", 235 pounds, high school safety and receiver that they converted to linebacker. He redshirted in 2017, played in 2018, started in 2019, was pretty good in 2020, and in 2021, he's a first-round draft pick. He was a defensive player of the year in the Pac-12. He's Nicobe Dean won the Butkus as the best linebacker from Georgia. He was a Butkus finalist. He's as good as any of those guys. I know Daniel Jeremiah, who I think is one of the best draft analysts out there, called him an angry missile with long arms. And it made me want to do a thing. You know how sometimes on Twitter, like they have like a, uh, they have you do a little tweet and then like everybody answers it and then your tweet goes viral. I was going to use an angry missile with long arms and say, describe yourself as. Emotional adjective noun with adjective body part. Like I would say I am a snarky potato with bony kneecaps, right? An angry missile with long arms. Do you think that could catch on as a Twitter thing or is it too hard to explain? Yeah, that might be a little bit in the weeds for the average tweet. Because it is, it's, it's a good way to describe anybody, right? That it's a, you know, like can't, like I don't want to say like uh, you know, um, it can't just be ad- any adjective for the first one. It's got to be kind of an emotional one, and then that second, that first noun is very important. Missile is very descriptive, right? And then long arms, that's really important for a linebacker. And you see it. All right, my Twitter thing's not going to work. You see it with him. And by the way, we're trying like every. I get it. I, I committed the ultimate sin. I asked Craig Young and Isaiah Simmons questions this year, and I, I should be, I should, I, you know, he's gone. He's at Kansas now. Good luck to Craig Young. He's working. You know. He's where Isaiah Simmons is from. <laughs> I mean, you can't, I mean, it's like, you can't, Hey, here's somebody who was unusual and, and was the best ever at it. Are you like him? It's like, yes, of course I'm like him. 
does Devin Lloyd remind you of Micah Parsons a little bit? Like he's a middle linebacker slash edge rusher. Half the time he's lined up, he's just lined up like Chase Young. And then he's he's half Chase Young, half Toff Borland. Then he's back in the middle of the defense, just like being menacing there in the middle of the field. You When you watch Devin Lloyd, there are sacks as an edge rusher. There are sacks on a blitz. There are, there his, he's shooting the gap in the run game and tackling running backs in the backfield. He is in coverage, breaking passes up. He's diving for interceptions. Nathan, he is one of these guys who's like two players in one, and they do have the game plan for him as the captain of the defense in the middle of the field who's going to tackle running backs and defend passes in the middle of the field. And they also have to plan for him as an edge rusher who's going to at times be a problem for Nicholas Petit Frere, Thayer Munford, and Dewan Jones. So trigger warning, I'm going to bring up a quick Purdue basketball thing because the athlete that he reminded me of the most was when uh, Caleb Swanigan, who people remember was a Big Ten player of the year at Purdue, uh, was like a great rebounder. And I remember asking him one time about him, like taking the ball away from his teammates on rebounds. He's like, and his answer was, there are no teammates in rebounding. And that's how Devin Lloyd plays defense. Like there are no teammates in tackling. And he plays defense like he's mad when his teammates get tackles. And like, he's supposed to get all the tackles anywhere. Like if he's 20 yards away from a play, he'll, I, you get, he just he plays with this style that where he's like, well, okay, like, good job by you, but I th- I'll get that one next time, even though he was like nowhere near the play, although he usually is. He's uh, just a guy who is pretty relentless. Like He wants all of those tackles, and he can almost always get there, but he's also incredibly smart. If you saw the play in the Pac-12 championship game where he deked uh, Brown into throwing that interception and he took back for a pick six, I thought that was a really smart read on his part to, to jump that route and take that home. So like, he is just, he's good, man. He's really good. If he played at Ohio state right now, people would be losing their minds. Selfish that tackling and rebounding selfish stats. Yeah, no, that's good. He doesn't wait for anybody else. He has 106 tackles on the year. That is 8.15 per game. That is 33rd in the country, but more descriptively, he is second in the nation in tackles for loss. He has 22 only Will Anderson who people think might be the number one pick in the 2023 NFL draft is ahead of him with 31 and a half. It, it, it is fitting to me in this year where we've all year, it's been like, Oh, the other team has better linebackers than Ohio state has, by the way, like the two Penn state guys, Brandon short and Ellis Brooks both decided to declare for the draft this week, but like they were better than Ohio state guys. Noah Sewell in week two, Noah Sewell, whose brother is on Utah who is the other like starting linebacker next to Devin Lloyd is Noah Sewell's brother. Noah Sewell was a problem at linebacker for Ohio state. Um, Micah McFadden was a problem. Jojo. No, what's his name? Jojo. Do- what's his- Jojo Doman. Jojo Doman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At Nebraska was a problem. Um, Josh Ross for Michigan was a dude. There have just been linebackers all over the place. And here we are with Ohio state facing the best line. The best line because Will Anderson, I like, might be a linebacker, but he's actually more of an edge rusher. And then Nicobe Dean's really, really Nicobe Dean, he won the buckets, but Nicobe Dean and Devin Lloyd are the two best. And Ohio State is facing a guy like this who might like take over the game. I don't, I don't know if a linebacker can win a game like this by himself, probably not, because if he does, it's going to actually be like with some edge rush stuff, right? Oh, we got a strip sack or that kind of thing that just being in the middle of the field. But it also makes me think, like, ah, might not be a game for you, Trevion. 
I really think they maybe should throw it 60 times. Like that's, that's part of why I'm not even, I'm not even joking about that. So he is the defensive player of the year in the PAC 12. Their other first team, all PAC 12 pick is Mike Tafua, who gets after the pass, Mika Tafua, who gets after the passer like a mofo. He has nine and a half sacks that leads the PAC 12. Um, really good edge guy, like 13 tackles for loss, nine and a half sacks, just like really good. 250 pounds, six, three defensive end. So that's legit. And then in the secondary, Clark Phillips, one-time Ohio State commit who decommitted and flipped after Jeff Halfley left, is one of their starting corners. He was second team, all Pac-12. Tafua, Nathan, I, th- I think, you know, they just got to block him. I don't know that they're, you know, again, this is, he's not Aiden Hutchinson. So if he's not Aiden Hutchinson, well, you know, they blocked George Karloftis. They've handled some other, ed- Arnold Ebikidi at Penn State was a little bit of a problem, but Anybody who's not Aiden Hutchinson, I think Ohio State's okay with an edge rusher. I don't know that Mika Tafu is going to take this game over. Yeah, I, I, what happened in that Michigan game was so unique. Um, it, it doesn't follow the pattern of what happened to Ohio State offensively in any other game this season. Um, and I'm, I'm not really that concerned. I wouldn't be that concerned if I was a, a fan that Ohio State is now somehow vulnerable to just, you know, people uh, rolling into the backfield like they're through a turnstile at a, uh, after the gates open at a concert or whatever. I, I think it's, I, I think they can handle this guy. Um, now that's, uh, even if Nicholas Petit Ferrer doesn't play, I think that they would probably be able to um, adjust and not be so vulnerable on the offensive line that they would be, a, there would be a problem here. Yeah, the thing is, Michigan had two guys, and the better of the two just went bananas. We're back in a world where it's really one guy Ohio State has to really lock in on. And they've shown in the past when they only have to worry about one guy, they do a pretty good job, even if he does, especially, I mean, that Purdue game. They, I mean, George Karloftis did absolutely nothing. So they've shown in the past when it's only one guy that's like a legitimate threat like that, they can handle it. Well, but the issue is – on passing downs, they're going to line up Tafua on one end and Devin Lloyd on the yeah. other. So, like Devin Lloyd, according to PFF, he has 644 snaps in the box at linebacker type stuff this year. He has 120 on the defensive line. So, if he has 120 snaps as an edge rusher, that's like eight a game. So, it's he's going to be there at times. And I will be very curious how much damage Devin Lloyd does as a pass rusher in this game when he's lined up on the edge. This Utah team, they have about nine guys that play almost every snap defensively, and then they rotate five defensive tackles. So everybody other than the defensive tackles are their main dudes who are kind of on the the, the, the field almost every play. Junior Tafuna is one of those defensive tackles. He was the Pac-12 defensive freshman of the year. So think of him. He's in the Tyleek Williams kind of discussion as like, he's not an every down guy. He's a true freshman, but he makes an impact when he's in there. So let's get to Clark Phillips. Steven, I know you've been asking people about Clark Phillips. It's, it's going to be one of the more interesting storylines here. How often do you have a kid who's an Ohio state commit that flips to Utah? I know when he flipped to Utah, a lot of people were like, what? And now they're all in the Rose Bowl together. So kind of worked out for Clark Phillips. He's one of their main dudes. I think you could argue he's the third best player on this defense. But I also think 
maybe the secondary is is not exactly the strength of what Utah does. But what's your read on Clark Phillips specifically? It's why I'm wondering where they're going to put him because they have kind of moved him around a little bit. He's been outside. He's been in the slot some. And so in this world where, I mean, we're talking about how he's passing game, you got to pick your poison and he's clearly the best of the bunch. Do you want to take away the, the slot guy, which is where TJ's bread and butter is at this point with Jack Smith and the Jigba? Do you want to just continue to maybe, you know, take away Chris Olave and bracket him and, you know, make sure that he's not a deep threat. And in a world where Garrett plays, do you just want to take away that explosive receiver altogether? So I I would assume they might want to take away Jackson because that's, he's been CJ safety outlet ever since he got more involved in this team. And I think he's got over 600 yards in the last four games here, starting with that, you know, 15 catch 200 plus yard game against Nebraska. So I'm wondering in that matchup, like, I'm very interested to watch that matchup if he does end up in the slot on Jackson Smith the Jig. But he said that they weren't on te- – he's gone up against them once at the opening in the summer of 2019. They weren't on the same team, so he got a chance to match up against them a couple of times. So I am – I'm very interested in watching that matchup because that's like the first ch- chance of Jackson getting the best of what another defense has to offer in the secondary going up against him and how he how he kind of responds to that. 60 passes, so we all know we're – an agreement on that? 60, 60 passes for Ohio State? No? Yes? Do we I generally be mad at it? I'm 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 like I'm really kind of there. The first like, drive will tell a lot, I think. I think they might try to come out and establish the run, and if it doesn't work, we might see them start throwing it around after that drive. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I don't even know if I'd bother. I I I will say uh to your point, Stephen, Clark Phillips, according to PFF. 677 snaps at outside corner, 131 snaps mm-hmm. in the slot. Malone Matele is the guy who usually plays slot for them. He has more than 400 snaps there, but Phillips does have some of that versatility. I think it is interesting to think of, do they want him on a specific guy? And I do think whether Garrett Wilson plays or not might influence some of this. I guess we also have to ask the question of Garrett Wilson doesn't play. Where does Jackson Smith and Jigma play? Like, does he definitely, I mean, does he take yeah. some snaps outside and a Mecca Cape some slot snaps and we see the beginning of maybe Jackson moving outside or does Jackson stay where he is? And that's just a lot of time for Julian Fleming and Marvin Harrison. I, I think there's kind of maybe multiple ways they could go there. It's a pretty good defense. It's a pretty good defense, but I think if you're going to hit him, hit him with the pass game. Go ahead, Nathan. I was going to say, I think because Ibuko was banged up late in the season, I think it might be more of the latter that you just mentioned, that they might just leave Jackson in the slot and give those other guys more time, depending on how banged up he was. But that just was knowing nothing else. That would be my assumption. Okay. Uh, is there anything else that we didn't cover? I mean, I do have like the PFF grades here uh, for some of the guys. Devin Lloyd, by far the highest graded defensive player for Utah in PFF. He's over 91 to to Fua, the defensive end was next, like he's around 84 something. So they're, they're clearly their two best guys, but the rest of the defense is pretty solid. I think it, I think it'll be a game. Uh, we're not going to make our picks now or anything, but I know that, you know, I talked about the guy on Twitter, Utah fan who got mad because I said, is it Devin Lloyd? Is that his name? And the guy was like, how dare you? It's like, I get it. Utah's good. I mean, Utah's like the, the eighth best team in the country or whatever. And like, and Ohio state's like the sixth. So you know, even there was if, also a video we did like 20 minutes after finding out that's who they were going to play. Like, 
no, no, no. more time to think about this. No, yeah. no, no. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things. It's like, how dare you not know more about Utah? It's like, dude, right. I don't even know what to tell you, man. But we dug in a little bit here. And I think we do have the proper amount of respect for this team. And I would say I would give it like maybe a 30% chance of Ohio State's offense is so good and CJ Stroud throws for 500 yards and nothing else matters. And then a 70% chance that it's a game. And then if it's a game, then I think, you know, Utah has an actual chance to win. So I think, I think you maintain that CJ Stroud answer is the answer to everything remains a possibility here. I guess that's it. I guess it's time to say Merry Christmas to everybody. One more quick name to, to, for people just to remember is a guy named Braden Daniels. Might actually be their best offensive player. He's the right tackle. Mm, we did not talk about him. Um, but I think he's uh, – for coming off of a situation where Michigan's offensive line shoved people around uh, a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, I'm just – I'm I'm uh, aware of the fact that Utah's got some pretty good tackles, and he on the right side I think is actually the better of the two. He sort of leads a lot of what they do with the run game. Okay. All right. Well, thanks everybody for making uh, Buckeye Talk part of your year. We're going to come back next week. We might, I might drop one other podcast in here in the next couple of days, but we'll, we'll probably come back with something on Monday for you um, once we get into like actual Rose Bowl week. So we hope you guys have a great holiday. Uh, we, again, if you want to give the gift of Buckeye Talk, 614-350-3315. It's one of those things where it's like, you've got to put in the phone number like of the person that the texts are going to go to, but you can do it on your computer. You don't have to do it from your phone. So that is a way to do that. If you go to joinsubtext.com slash Buckeye Talk, I think you can sign up on a computer that way that you can put in like someone else's phone number and they'll start getting the texts. 614-350-3315 if you want to sign up through your phone. And if you have any questions about it, shoot us a message on Twitter and we'll try to help you. Okay. Merry Christmas, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. For Stephen Means and Nathan Baird, I'm Doug Maurice, and that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>